well, good morning and welcome. I want to welcome those of you that are joining with us online. Uh, this is our first service where we do the weekly Bible prophecy updates. Uh, second service is actually the verse by verse study through the Word of God. We're currently in Second Peter, and today's text will be chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. And what we're going to do is answer the question of how close we are to the pre-trib rapture by presenting three factors to consider concerning just how near it really is. Spoiler alert, it's really close. That'll be live streamed at 11.15. And uh, for those of you here, you're certainly welcome to stay and join with us as well. Also, for those of you online watching by way of YouTube or Facebook, you may wish to at this time go directly to the website, jdfrog.org. There you will find the uncensored and uninterrupted entirety of today's update. And with that, let's get started. <laughs> uh, we need to talk. Don't you hate it when somebody says, we need to talk? You know it's not good. Well, we need to talk. I know I'm the one doing all the talking, but we still need to talk. And this is one of those updates that I'm just going to have to ask you for your grace and your patience with me. Um, it is my hope and my prayer that today's update will be an encouragement to those like myself who have been really struggling as of late. Struggling because of how people today, even worse, many professing Christians today, are living life as if the end were far away, decades away. And when this happens, what ensues is what always ensues, which is that of being unprepared, believing that the end is unexpected. That's what I want to talk about today. Now, please know that when I say unprepared, I'm in no way referring to prepping in the sense of how it's understood by the prepper. Rather, I'm using this word in the context of being at the ready for that which one is expecting to happen suddenly at any time. Specifically, the rapture of the church prior to the tribulation, the Antichrist's revelation, and then the commencement of the seven-year tribulation. By way of a personal illustration, we had an unexpected electricity outage in our home a couple of weeks ago. I'm not talking about when we had those high winds. This was prior to that. And uh, all of a sudden, just out of nowhere, out goes our electricity. So I'm kind of waiting, thinking, oh, it'll, it'll come back on. And it did. Completely caught me off guard. I was so not prepared. 
Why was I not prepared? Because I wasn't expecting it. It was beautiful outside. Wind? No, trade winds. Beautiful. Electricity goes out. So I'm trying to, oh, by the way, <laughs> well, never mind. I was going to tell you where I was at. Well, now I have to. I was in the bathroom when it went out. <laughs> Talk about not being ready or expecting it. Is that too much information? I'm sorry. So, you know, thank God for these devices that, you know, not Satan's devices, although one would wonder, but they have flashlights on them now. So I, I turned it on, made my way out of the uh, bathroom <laughs> and uh, to darkness. And I'm like, okay, let's get the flashlights. The problem is we were so unprepared, I forgot where we put the flashlights, right? Because you put the flashlights in that place that you want to remember where you put them when you need them, except you don't remember because you forget to remember and you, anyway. So can't find that. And then when we finally find these things, guess what? You know what? Thank you. The batteries are dead. And here's the thing. I have one of those battery backups, you know, um, that charges. And then when the electricity goes off, you got a battery backup that can run a few things for a little while. Well, that thing was dead too. So what did I do? Well, being the godly man of faith that I am, I just fell to the floor and cried like a baby. <laughs> just, you know, how could I not be prepared? So it came on six hours later. And what did I do? Um, I bought 585,000 flashlights and lanterns and five boxes of batteries. And, and then it took me like two hours to put them all together. But now I was ready. I was like, bring it on. Probably shouldn't have said that, because it was brought on. The high winds, and sure enough, the electricity goes out again. But this time I was prepared. Why was I prepared? Because I was expecting it. You see where I'm going with this? so too is this true when it comes to the rapture of the church, such that when one is expecting of it, so too are they prepared for it. But we have a problem. And I struggle greatly with this. I'm just sharing my heart. The Lord knows my heart. But the problem is, that there's this settling into a business-as-usual mindset. And it just has crept back in. And in turn, it has severed one's expectation of Christ's soon return. And here's why. We're all prone to buy the lie. 
What's the lie? Oh, the lie is that there's still hope for the things in this world getting better and returning to normal. In other words, instead of Jesus returning, a normal business as usual is returning. And what's the result? Well, the result is now that the rapture is pushed further down the road, so to speak, and it's seen as being far off into the future. In Jeremiah chapter 37, verses 1 through 10, fascinating account, and I think it's so apropos for us today. Let me give you kind of the backstory here. The Babylonians had just departed from their siege of Jerusalem, and they had to go to Egypt. And the result was that the Israelites believed that, hey, everything's good now. It's not the end, as Jeremiah has been prophesying all of these doom and gloom prophecy updates. So what do they do? They start living their normal everyday lives again. I mean, after all, the restrictions have been lifted. They don't even have to wear a mask. <laughs> Just thought I'd throw that in. Well, this led to Judah not only fancying this notion that it's not the end, they started believing that they could make Judah great again. However, despite this semblance of normalcy and returning to their business as usual lives, the Babylonians would in fact return, just as the prophet Jeremiah had prophesied the word of the Lord. I want to read beginning in verse 6, Jeremiah 37. Then the word of the Lord came to the prophet Jeremiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Thus you shall say to the king of Judah, who sent you to me to inquire of me. Behold, Pharaoh's army, which has come up to help you, will return to Egypt to their own land. And the Chaldeans, Babylonians, shall come back and fight against this city, and take it and burn it with fire. Thus says the Lord, verse 9. I want you to listen very carefully to this. Do not deceive yourselves, saying, the Chaldeans will surely depart from us, for they will not depart. Picture the scene here. They've been under this lockdown restrictions. The Babylonians had besieged the city outside Jerusalem, the city wall. They could not move, travel, nothing. In fact, they had already cut off their food supply and their water supply, which is how they would take a city in that day. Not much has changed in our day, in the spiritual sense. That's exactly what the enemy does. He wants to cut off the food supply, the bread of life. 
the water supply, the water of God's Word in our life. And as soon as He can cut off that source, it's just a matter of time He's got us. And that's what they would do. So this is already happening. And then all of a sudden they go to Egypt. And can you imagine the collective sigh of relief on the part of Judah? <gasps> They're gone. We can, we can go outside now and go to the store now. And I'm not going to keep going there with that, but you get the point, right? Even Jeremiah is attempting to travel outside the city to go to Anathoth, where he had purchased real estate while he was in prison. <laughs> it's a fascinating account just in that. And he stopped. And eventually he's thrown back in prison, couldn't travel. But they were going back to normal, business as usual. Hey, the, the, the restrictions have been lifted. The Babylonians have left. Happy days are here again. And then God says to Jeremiah, you, you better tell the king, thus says the Lord, don't be deceived. They're coming back. They're coming back. Don't get too comfortable. They're coming back. And they're going to take the city and they're going to burn the city exactly as I've had you prophesy for some 40 plus years. Normal isn't back. They'll be back. Do you see the connection here? But they didn't believe it. Now why do I point this out and make this comparison? Because we're like the Israelites, thinking that prophecy in the Word of the Lord about the return of the Lord is not as near as we thought. Because after all, things are kind of loosening up and getting back to some semblance of normalcy. But the problem is, if we believe it's not the end, and the end is afar off, and our Master delays His coming, then sort of by default we redirect our focus on this world and the things of this world, because we're going to be here for a while. And this lends itself to still holding out hope for this world and in this world, under the banner of building back better. Then when this happens, we're no longer hoping for the rapture, but instead hoping for things to get better. Actually, if I can take this one step further, this can even lead to fighting so as to make life better down here, in lieu of fighting the good fight for eternal life up there. I think you would agree that when things start getting better in this life, 
we give little to no thought about salvation and eternal life. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we would have to admit that. But conversely, when adversity strikes and hardship hits, and adversity does strike and hardship does hit, we're more likely to loosen our ever-tightening grip and let go of this world and the things of this world. The Apostle John and the Apostle Peter write about this concerning one's love for this world and one's hope in this world. First John chapter 2, beginning in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. And I want you to pay particular attention to what he says next, because it's kind of uh, intense. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Wait, what? So yeah, I mean, I kind of love my life in this world, want to keep my life in this world. Well, Jesus said, if you try to keep it, you'll lose it. If you lose it, you'll keep it. But John here is echoing, in a sense, what the Savior said, but he takes it to a whole new level in a way, because what he's saying is, if you love the world, you cannot love the Lord. It's one or the other. It's reminiscent of what Jesus said in Matthew 6, it's recorded in that Sermon on the Mount, where He says, you cannot serve two masters. It's either one or the other. It's an impossibility. So if you're loving the world, then you cannot love the Lord. It's impossible. And by the way, James, <laughs> you want to talk about taking it to a whole new level. I mean, he's in your face, in Jesus' name, of course. <laughs> you're friends with the world? You're sending the world friend re requests on social media? Beware when all men speak well of you, but if you're friends with the world, then you're at enmity with God. And guess what? I'm uh, softening it up just a little bit. He calls them adulterers and adulteresses, because they're committing spiritual adultery with the world. They have a lover. It's the world. And this is, in effect, what Peter is saying. And then he goes on to expound why. Verse 16, for all that is in the world, all that is in the world, <laughs> the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And here's the thing, verse 17, the world is passing away, translated dying, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. The Apostle Peter, we've gotten to know Peter as of late, in his first letter, chapter 1, verse 13. He says, therefore, keyword, prepare, that's prepping, your minds for action. 
discipline yourselves. Set all your hope, not some of your hope, most of your hope, no, all your hope on the grace that Jesus Christ will bring you when He is, wait for it, revealed. That's the rapture. The revealing, the appearing, that's not the coming of Christ, that's the second coming. No, this is the appearing, the rapture. So you do need to prepare, and the battleground is in the mind. And this is when the Apostle Paul, writing to the Philippians chapter 4, basically says, you need to discipline your mind. Pardon me, it's not Philippians, it's Timothy. He's not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of a disciplined mind. We discipline our mind like we discipline our children. That's not okay. You, you need to give your mind a spanking. You need to take every thought captive into the obedience of Christ. There needs to be a discipline there. You cannot let things in your mind. You know, so many of us are, are very health conscious about what we allow into our bodies, but we give no thought to what we allow into our minds. So it's a disciplined mind, a prepared mind. Prepared for what? It's preparing yourself to set all your hope in Jesus and the rapture when He's revealed. What are you saying? Second Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away. Can I get an amen on that one? Yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. I really get an amen on that one, right? Can't wait. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So, verse 6, here's the point, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, this world, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Listen, we're just renting. I know this is a ludicrous illustration, but for lack of a better one, um, you go and you rent a car, if you can find one. <laughs> anyway, so you rent a car, and it's just a rental car. But you go out and spend all this money on nice fancy wheels. Uh, you're going to, you know, do some, uh, you're, you're going to put in nice tunes. Oh, I, pardon me, I stand corrected. My boys corrected me. You, you, got, you guys called them tunes in your day? We don't call them tunes anymore. Oh, excuse me. What do you guys call them? Sounds. Oh, fine. Excuse me. Whatever. So you're going to put sounds in there. I mean, an elaborate, you know, stereo system. And you know, while you're at it, you're going to get some accessories and, you know, maybe put a kit on there and lower it and, you know, tint the windows. And how am I doing so far? Good. Are you with me? Why? It's a rental car. 
you're not going to have it that long. It's temporary. It's temporary. Same thing with renting a house. What, you're going to remodel a house that you're renting? Why would you do that? You're only renting. You're only passing through. You're here but for a short time. In comparison to eternity, why is it that our focus, our hope, our time, our energy, our investment, we fix our eyes on these things down here that are temporary at the expense of that which is eternal. So not only does this have the much needed effect of getting our eyes on eternity, it has the effect of reaching the lost for eternity. Doubtless you're familiar with that Mark Twain quote, which I fully disagree, vehemently disagree with. You can be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. It's the opposite that's true. The more heavenly minded you are, the more earthly good you will be. Why? Because as we just read, your eyes are fixed on eternity. So now everything in this life is viewed through the lens of eternity. And that has a way of really prioritizing your life, how you spend your time, your resources, your energy. The truth of the matter is, when we fix our eyes of faith on what is unseen in the future, we'll have an eternal hope in the present. That's why being heavenly minded is of such earthly good. One night at dinner, a man who had spent many summers in Maine fascinated his companions by telling of his experiences in a little town named Flagstaff. The town was to be flooded as part of a large lake for which a dam was being built. In the months before it was to be flooded, all improvements and repairs in the whole town were stopped. What was the use of painting a house if it were to be covered with water in six months? Why repair anything when the whole village was to be wiped out? So week by week the whole town became more and more run down and in a depressing state of disrepair and had gone from bad to worse. Then he added, by way of explanation, where there is no faith in the future, there is no hope in the present. Now stay with me. To have no future hope in this world presently has the propensity to redirect our hope to the future eternally vis-a-vis -vis Bible prophecy. And here's how I get there. When I know that suddenly, unexpectedly, the trumpet could sound, I hope I'm not in the bathroom, just saying. And the dead in Christ are going to rise first. And we who are alive and remain will be caught up, harpazo in the Greek, rapturous in the Latin, raptured up 
Paul writing to the Corinthians chapter 15 verses 51 and 52 fills in a couple of blanks with specificity that it's going to be in the twinkling of an eye, not a blink. It's going to be so fast. And we're going to put off corruptible, these bodies, <laughs> that alone. And we're going to put on incorruptible, our glorified bodies. And then we're going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air and all of our loved ones that died in Christ prior. They get their new bodies. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord in spirit, but they get their new bodies at the rapture. I'm going to see my daughter Noelle again. I'm going to see my mommy again. I'm hoping and believing by faith I'll see my dad too, and the many others. But that's my hope. See, I, I have that to look forward to. Now wouldn't it stand to reason that when you have that to look forward to, it changes everything that you do down here, because of what awaits you up there. So Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope. What's the blessed hope? The glorious appearing, not coming, appearing rapture of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness, and to purify for Himself a people that are His very own, eager to do what is good. Uh, one quick comment on this before we move on to First John again. Never think when you read powerful promises like this here in Titus about our blessed hope, that it carries with it the idea of, I sure hope. No. No, it's not that. It's more like this. It's not the blessed hope. It's our only hope. This is our only hope. The only way we're getting out of this deal, if I can say it that way. He's our only hope. The glorious appearing of Jesus Christ. And notice the impact that this has. It brings about purity, righteousness. Simply put, when you live your life like this, it has this much needed effect of getting your affairs in order. So you're prepared, because now it's expected. You'll forgive the comparison, but when you go into the doctor's office and they give you the bad news that, hey, this is terminal and you better get your affairs in order because you don't have much time, doesn't that change everything? All of a sudden those things that 
you thought were important are no longer important anymore. And things that were not necessarily important are very important now. You're going to get your affairs in order. Well, that's in the spiritual sense. This purifying of oneself. It's not that we clean ourselves up. No, it's the Holy Spirit purifying us from the inside out. This is what John said, chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us. I like that, lavish. That we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Don't take it personal. Jesus said, hey, by the way, they're going to hate your guts. Don't take it personal. It's because they hate me and you're associated with me. Dear friends, verse 2, John. Now, we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when He appears, there's that word again, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And then He says this, verse 3, everyone who has this hope in Him, purifies himself just as he is pure. Translated, he gets his affairs in order. He knows he doesn't have much time. Romans 13, beginning in verse 11, and do this, understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber. Why? Because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Interesting, that would come up and rise to the level of being on the same list as something as horrific as sexual immorality and orgies and drunkenness, striving and divisions and dissension and jealousy and covetousness and gossip. And it's on the same level. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ, and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. First Peter, again, chapter 4, verse 7. The end, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind. There's the disciplined mind again so that you may pray. Okay. Here we are at the end, and you'd never know it. Again, I'm just going to be very candid with you. This is 
a great struggle of mine personally, especially when pastors who I in some cases know and have been greatly blessed by over the years with their teaching, fabulous teachers of God's Word. But if I listened to one of their teachings, I would never know that anything happened. I, I, I would never, and it doesn't help when they will say almost verbatim something like this, we might have another 50 years. Oh, what? No! And then I turn them off. <laughs> what are you talking about? You're talking about what you shouldn't be talking about, and you're not talking about what you should be talking about. Why are you talking about the pastor friends that you and I know that are dead now? Oh, nobody wants to talk. Let's not ruffle any feathers. No, ruffle them. Let's not rock the boat. No, rock the boat. By the way, the boat's already been rocked. So here, here we are, we're at the end. And you never know. Why? Because it looks like everybody's like, hey, they're living their lives, business as usual. Question, why? Answer, it's horrifying. The answer to why is because the gospel of salvation in the person of Jesus Christ is not preached. And by gospel I mean the crucifixion, burial, resurrection on the third day, and the rapture of the church, which can happen any day. That's why the gospel is not being preached. Because see, the power of the gospel, when preached, will change people's lives. And you bring back to His rightful place the person of Jesus Christ, who becomes now central, instead of off to the periphery. Because you see, you cannot separate the return of Jesus Christ from the gospel of Jesus Christ, because the return of Jesus Christ is good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That'd be like trying to separate, I'll try this one, Simon from noodles. Did that work? Because, you know, on the mainland it was spaghetti from noodles. You can't, it's not spaghetti anymore. Listen, if you've got a better illustration, let me know afterwards. I'll certainly incorporate it. So again, if I sound angry, it's because there is a righteous anger. No wonder people don't have hope. No wonder people are placing their hope in this world, because they're not hearing 
the gospel of Jesus Christ about the next. It's evidenced by articles like this one from the Christian Post, published last Sunday, titled, Biblical Worldview Much Closer to Extinction After COVID-19 Lockdowns. Listen to this. I'm just going to quote a portion of it. The vast majority of Americans, 96 percent, do not hold to a biblical worldview following the COVID-19 lockdowns, according to a new survey. Americans tinkered with many things during the three lockdown years, from home improvement projects to baking sourdough bread. But improving their worldview apparently was not one of them. A biblical worldview, the survey said, is one in which the entirety, entirety of a person's ideas about all dimensions of life and eternity are based on biblical principles and commands. So if I'm assessing this correctly, that means that only 4%, 4% still hold to this biblical worldview as it's defined here. If you think about it, this is the irony of ironies. Teaching Bible prophecy about the end is conspicuously absent at the end, at a time when it's needed most. Bible prophecy tells us what the world will be like in the end, but with the deafening silence, no one believes it is the end. It's chiefly for this reason that over the last three years I've shouted from the rooftop the numerous and voluminous Bible prophecies that speak to this being how it ends, when it ends, and the way it ends. Okay, Pastor, what if you're wrong? Well, two things. First, I will humble myself and ask for forgiveness if I'm wrong. And don't take this the wrong way. I'm not. <laughs> I, I, you, just, you just took that the wrong way. How can you be so sure? Well, the reason I can be so sure is because I know the Word of God, and the God of the Word, and over one-third of the Word is Bible prophecy that foretells the first coming of Jesus Christ, the rapture, and then the second coming of Jesus Christ. So because I know the Word, and by the way, I hate to use this cliché, but it's very true. Bible prophecy is not to scare us, but to prepare us. 
So I've been studying Bible prophecy for, I won't tell you how long. Been walking with the Lord for over 40 years. And I've always had a love for Bible prophecy. I've always been a student of Bible prophecy. And then as God called me in the ministry, I started teaching Bible prophecy. I say that to say this, I kind of know a thing or two about Bible prophecy. I'm not an expert. I don't want to ever come off like that. I, I don't really take well to being called Bible prophecy expert. Where? <laughs> Me? No. I just, like you, I just, I know what Bible prophecy says and why. Why is one-third of the word prophecy? Because, think this through with me, God wants us to know. Why does God want us to know? Because He wants us to be ready, so that we're not caught off guard. So it's not unexpected. We're fully expecting it, prepared for it, watching for it. How about this one? Paul to Timothy, longing for it. And when you know how God has done everything and stopped at nothing to describe for us with precision, accuracy, and specificity the conditions of the world at the time of the end, you cannot. You can try, but you cannot read the Word of God and Bible prophecy in the Word of God and come away with this notion that, hey, we got time. You really think that? Oh, but then here's what happens. And just bear with me again. I'm just sharing my, out of the, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh, right? I, it is such a struggle for me, because they are so quick and so good at coming back at us with something like this. Ah, oh, you've gotten this. Well, what are you going to do? Just sit on your hands and do nothing until the rapture? <laughs> Get thee behind me, Satan. Um, actually, it's the opposite that's true. If I truly believe that the rapture could happen at any time, that's a game changer, man. All of a sudden now, the way I see people is different. Because I'm looking at that person, and I, whereas before, I would look at them with a disdain. I, I've repented. <laughs> but now I look at them as an opportunity, because they need Jesus. One of the things that has really changed in my heart, as the Lord has done a profoundly deep work in my heart towards other people, is when I see them through the lens of eternity and the nearness of the rapture, I imagine, and this is, this is a good thing to do, I imagine them not being saved when that trumpet sounds and being left behind. And they will enter into the most horrific seven years of human history. 
And then all of a sudden I go from being angry at them to feeling sorry for them and wanting to pray for them. It just changes everything. So the next time somebody tries to rub your face in this whole thing, uh, well then you're just going to do nothing. We're supposed to occupy till He comes. They are misquoting that parable, by the way. We talked about it. I won't go into it in the interest of time. But that particular parable, different than the others, is the mina. And every one of the servants got the same exact amount, one. It's the gospel. It's not the worldly mammon. It's not the resources, your talents, your... No, it's the gospel. The mine is the gospel. And then Jesus said, occupy until I come. Occupy with what? The gospel. You need to get the gospel out. Now, the question becomes one of when did the end begin? Are we good that this is the end? You're just saying that probably, right? Because what are you going to say? No, actually I'm not. Okay, well fine. See me after. Actually, don't see me after. <laughs> um, Okay, so with the presupposition that we're all in agreement that this is how it ends, this is the end, just alone, one proof beyond any doubt, not reasonable doubt, beyond any doubt, is that the technology that is in place today is the technology described in the book of Revelation. You go out 10, 20 years, you exceed especially as fast as technology is advancing, you exceed the technology that is described in the Bible. That's one reason, and by the way, I've got many <laughs> as to why it is that there cannot be 20 years, 30 years, 50 years. And by the way, it just hit me, I think on a Thursday night a couple weeks ago, I'll be dead. I don't want to be dead. I want to go up in the rapture. And I have a, anyway, that's enough of my problems. So we're good with that. We've established that. This is the end. Now we have another question on the table. And the question is, when did the end begin? And that's what I'd like to now address. And we'll go ahead at this time and end the live stream on YouTube and Facebook. What follows is a brief summary of what led up to the present, explaining why the end is unexpected, and as such people are unprepared. It actually started over 100 years ago with the Rockefellers, who funded a eugenics initiative to get this, sterilize 15 million Americans. A couple of quotes I'll share with you from this must-read article published by Truth Stream Media, quoting, Following World War II, eugenics was rebranded to cast off its associations with the Nazis and emerged, as it were, in the form of such social policy topics as population control, 
family planning, abortion slash Planned Parenthood, health care, various types of genetics, even laced in between such agendas as global warming slash climate change, which leads to arguments about reducing the burden of overpopulation upon the earth. Later projects funded by the Rockefeller Foundation included everything from Margaret Sanger and Planned Parenthood to, listen, an anti-fertility vaccine, among others. These people spent millions back then and continued to do so throughout the decades. I think last week it was I shared a quote about how the needle and syringe was actually invented 100 and over 160 years ago. It's old technology. It's old news. And these are the guys who came up with it in the late 1800s, by the way, because they had to get that into people. And the chief goal was to sterilize them so as to control the population and then reduce the population that they would then in turn control a reduced population. That's what this is all about. Enter this 11-page downloadable PDF file titled, The COVID-19 Genocide of 2020, which links Bill Gates to the Rockefeller Foundation, uh, among others, by the way. To say that this publication is thoroughly documented would be a gross understatement. Here's a couple of quotes. COVID-19 was long pre-planned in documents and simulation exercises emanating from the eugenicist Bill Gates and the Rockefeller Foundation. A platform with 200 detailed levels is provided by the World Economic Forum, led by Klaus Schwab, a technocrat and promoter of transhumanism. I would actually disagree. He's not the promoter of it. He's the father of it. In order to provide detailed instructions on how COVID-19 is to be used to implement a global monetary reset and digital currency under the guise of socialism and environmentalism through a sinister vaccine conspiracy. It is a depopulation and military weapon in combination with vaccines and chemtrails containing nanoparticles the torture or murder of targeted individuals, and to force vaccinate populations with a non-medical vaccine containing population control mechanisms without their informed consent. And you're not talking about this. You're not warning people about this. 
We don't live in a day anymore. There might have been a time, maybe in years past, where might have been more forgiving of preaching a three-point sermon about nothing. And then you just go home and have lunch and go to bed Sunday night and go to work Monday morning and then repeat. We don't live in that world anymore. That world's gone. It's never coming back. Yeah, I know the Chaldeans have left, but they're coming back. Do you realize that everything I've referenced and quoted is exactly what Bible prophecy tells us will happen at the time of the end? This might be a little bit strong, but maybe it needs this sanctified strength. It is criminal for a pastor to get behind a pulpit, as is his privilege to, and not warn the people. And it's even worse than that. When you get a pastor, and especially someone who's well known, and not only are they not talking about this, they're actually promoting this. I mean, that, that explains it, doesn't it? It doesn't excuse it, it explains it. No wonder. I shouldn't have. I did yesterday. I watched, um, I'm going to name him, Robert Jeffress, First Dallas Baptist, uh, personal friends with one Donald J. Trump. And uh, I've actually on a, uh, had one occasion uh, where I met him and talked with him. It's kind of a weird conversation. Um, Fox News contributor, you know, very uh, well known. And I watched this video. I shouldn't have. Again, I know I shouldn't have. But he basically said that any pastor who, oh, he said it like this. This is almost a quote. And you can find this online. He said, I, I heard a pastor say the other day that this vaccine will become the mark of the beast. I think he was talking about me. <laughs> yeah, I, I said that. Because it's true. Because it's true. And he took it further and basically, and, and I also, in that same video again, I know it says, pray for me, Franklin Graham, someone that I have had the utmost respect for over the years. I served on his executive committee many years ago on the mainland, and had the opportunity again to meet him and talk with him over lunch. And and he makes a statement that if Jesus were alive, he would want for us to get vaccinated. Okay, hang, hang on. <laughs> possibly, possibly, they're either deceived, and that's the height of deception, or, and I, well, you already know I'm not bashful, I'm just going to say it. They might have something on these guys. 
Does that make sense? So we have uh, documentation that if you don't say this, we're going to leak it. So they, they are being blackmailed. I mean, there might be other reasons, but those are the only two that I can get anywhere close to explaining why it is that someone like that, who has that much of a platform, would say something like that. It reminds me of the prophets, the false prophets in Jeremiah's day. Here's Jeremiah prophesying, this is the end. This is the end. This is how it ends. The end. And then you got all these other false prophets over here going, no, it's not the end. We're not going to be taken captive. To By the way, did you look out your window? They're gone. Jeremiah is wrong. It's all good. We got another 50 years. Actually, you've got about 70 years, but it's not here. It's in Babylon. I'm going to try to, <laughs> I was going to say calmly, but that's, that wouldn't be honest, bring it in for a close. And I say this, and the Lord knows my heart, that the reason the rapture is unexpected and people are unprepared is because today's pulpits are self-silenced self-silenced of any such warning. Like the watchman in Ezekiel, who did not warn the people, their blood is on those watchmen's hands. Because this is it. <laughs> Can I just ask a, a sort of a rhetorical question? If this is not it, hypothetically, what, what is? If this is not the time of the end, I ask you, pray tell, when is it then? If this isn't how it ends, then maybe I don't want to be around 50 years, and maybe I do want to get an earlier flight. <laughs> be around for that. No, this is it. This is it. This is the end. We're at the end. And the rapture can happen at any time. May I, as I end with the gospel and the ABCs of salvation, simply say that we are to be a people who are expecting the rapture, and as such, prepared and ready for the rapture. Get your affairs in order. Get your affairs in order. And don't listen to these who say, nah, we got plenty time, plenty time. Is that, that was, that, was that okay? Plenty time? That's not how you say it, is it? Oh well. What's the gospel? We just got done talking about it. And please don't 
remove the rapture, because the Apostle Paul, the very first time he writes about the gospel, it's the crucifixion, burial, resurrection, and rapture. That's the good news of salvation in the person of Jesus Christ. We end with these ABCs simply as a explanation, a childlike explanation of salvation, how to be saved. It's not the only way, it's just a way, a simple tool to be equipped with. The A is for admit or acknowledge that you're a sinner. That's where it has to start. Otherwise, why would you want to have any interest in a Savior? Romans 3.10 says, there is no one righteous, not even one. And Romans 3.23 tells us why. It's because all have sinned, all, and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 sort of propels us into the sentencing phase, because there's a penalty now for sin, and all have sinned. What's the penalty? It's the death penalty. The wages of sin is death. That's the bad news. But here's the good news. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because Jesus died for me instead of me and paid my death penalty. That's why. The B, very central, is for believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. And then the C lastly is for call upon the name of the Lord, or as Romans 10, 9 and 10 also says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And here's why, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. And Romans 10.13, lastly, says, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I just uh, thought of this passage in Acts when Jesus ascends, and the disciples are just looking and staring. And I think it was Peter said, why, why are you doing that? The, no, I think it was the angel of the Lord. Boy, I should probably know my uh, passages of Scripture before I quote them. The angel of the Lord says, why are you uh, staring in heaven? The way he's leaving will be the same way he comes back when he appears in the clouds. Amen. Oh, Lord, come quickly. Today's But God testimony comes from Chuck Green, who writes, Pastor J.D., but God. <laughs> Dear Pastor, your ministry has meant so much to me in these crazy times. Thank you, and God bless you and your family and congregation. I'm writing this to profess God's goodness, grace, and provision in my life. I do not feel I could ever earn His favor, but He gives it regardless, and so often has. I struggle to keep up and often identify as the man in the parable who is choked by life's demands and obligations. COVID-19 years 2020 through 2022 were difficult years. I had an employer at the time who was patient with my loss of family, 
biological father, son, and adopted mother. How's that one? However, that senior leader retired, and the company culture turned towards mandates, even after the Supreme Court ruling. In turn, I was let go, rather than accept my religious exemption. Our family has a long-standing history of religious exemption, as we have homeschooled our six children and experienced vaccine adverse reaction in one of our children. As part of my separation, God did provide a severance package, which is more than so many nation, so many nationwide received. Although I had many active interviews and colleague referrals, I had no solid offer as my severance wound down, but God. I received a call from a recruiter out of the blue, looking for someone of my background. Five interviews and a month later I was offered an advisor role matching my best earnings year from any previous employer, and the fit was ideal. Additionally, while it is a multi-billion dollar company, it is a Christian-owned and privately-owned company with bi-weekly prayer meetings. Needless to say, the Lord indeed provides, even when we aren't feeling worthy or doing enough for His glory. God is good and is for us. Trusting in Him is always the best thing we can do. I'm now eight months into the role and experiencing success on behalf of my team. God is good. Best regards, sincerely, Chuck Boone, North Carolina. Praise the Lord. Come on up, David. Why don't you go ahead and stand. Once again, I appreciate your patience. Father in heaven, I, I thank you for the struggle, because the struggle is necessary for all of us to let go of this world, just let go of it, and ready ourselves for eternity. It's healthy. It's beneficial. So Lord, I, I do thank You for the struggle, and I know there are many like me who struggle in a very similar way. And so Lord, thank You that we can know, not wish, hope, speculate. No, we can know. We can know, because You want us to know that our redemption draws nigh. And You also want us to be prepared, so that when the day of the Lord, the tribulation, which we're going to talk about in Second Peter, second service, that comes as a thief in the night, does not catch us off, off guard, because we were expecting. We got batteries in the flashlights of our Christian lives. We're ready. Oh, Lord, <laughs> I pray that every single one of us would be ready for when that trumpet sounds. And for those who have never called upon You, believing in You. 
I pray that today would be the day of their salvation. Please, Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.